All right, well, push this back before I'm going to knock it over. We are um, in this series called Groundwork. I'm going to have to get my sermon, sermon back in order from first service. This is uh, the thought here behind this series. If you are just kind of dropping in this morning or you haven't been with us every week was, we started in, in the beginning of January with the thought being we wanted to see uh, not just the normal New Year's resolution where we hope to make some promises and change things and do better, but that we could actually together, what if we all together tried to do something? And we set some goals together and we worked towards it together um, in seven key areas of our life. So we've been looking at these seven areas. You know, this groundwork theme is kind of up here with some of our, our decoration and all the rest because we're all a people under transformation. None of us are where we want to be. And the truth is we're never going to fully become who God wants us to be in this life, but we can be better tomorrow than we are today. And that's the goal. In order to achieve that, I've been asking you to come on this little journey, and I know there's no more overused word lately than journey. Everybody's on some journey, but if we would go on this little this walk together over these weeks, and you wouldn't just come to church on Sunday and, and check out, but that you'd be engaged in the service with the sermon notes. Hopefully you got all those when you came in this morning. In fact, uh, Eric, while you're back there, anybody not get the sermon cards this morning when they came in? If you did not, I will get my, hold your hands up, the ushers will come and get you your sermon cards for this morning. This is something we haven't done before where I'm giving notes out every week because I want you to take notes because I, I, I really want to change together in these areas. So we've been asking people to, to write down the stuff. And then I'm writing four devotions a week on each of these topics. And, and I'm asking if you would just spend 10 minutes every other day, 10 minutes every other day, so that it's not just a Sunday morning event for you, but that you, know, you are being transformed. I am being transformed working through these things. So this week, you're getting a packet of, uh, this is probably your sixth or seventh. We're building up quite a book now. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, a new area. Uh, we've talked about spiritual health, physical health, relational health, emotional health. Today, we're going to be talking about financial health, which is maybe why there's so few people here. <laughs> if it wasn't snowy, I'd be wondering. But the truth is, uh, you're going to hear this morning that it is very hard to avoid transformation in your life without dealing with, uh, with financial issues. So uh, I've asked you every week to take notes, to do devotions, and to put a memory verse up in your house, to read it just every day, at least one time a day, and get these things, one verse about each topic into your mind. I'm going to give you one today that is so imprinted on my mind, I can say it all the time. Uh, somebody told it to me years ago, and it's the, one of the wisest things I've ever heard said to me. Comes out of the book of wisdom, Proverbs. Check this out and say it together with me, okay? I need you to say it loud because we're small in number because of the snow today. But say it with me. Proverbs uh, ver chapter 30, verses 8 through 9. Make me absolutely honest and don't let me be too poor or too rich. Give me just what I need. If I have too much to eat, I might forget about you. And if I don't have enough, I might steal and disgrace your name. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know the Bible talks a lot about money. I've been studying this all week. I'm telling you, I've been walking around inside Grace House saying to the staff, it's ridiculous how much the Bible talks about money. It's ridiculous. And I don't, I, you know, I know the perception. Please, if you're visiting a church, if you're not, if, don't, I try not to talk about money a lot because I don't want people to think that the church is about money. And I know that that gets attached to the church, and I hate that. Because it's not really about money. It's about hearts. But, but money, money impacts that. And, and 
so I know the Bible talks a lot about it, and so we have to talk about it. But I'm telling you, I never realized how much the Bible talked about money till this week. I mean, the Bible talks about money like you can't believe. Over and over and over and over and over again, you can't get away from it. Let me give you a couple examples of this, okay? Jesus talked more about money than he did either heaven or hell. It, depending on how you want to count parables, the, Jesus would teach in, in story, and it would be called a parable. Depending on how you want to count the parables, half of his parables were about money. How about this one? If you look at just the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, one out of every six verses has to do with money. So you would have to work really hard in a church to avoid, at some point or another, talking about money. You just can't get away from it. Why? Why does the Bible talk so much about money? I think because the truth is that 2,000 years ago, money was the same as it is today. It dominates our lives. Think for a moment. Just allow your head and allow your mind to wrap yourself around it. How much time, the percentage of your life, how much of your life is given away to making money, investing money, worrying over money, studying what to do with money, saving money, spending money, losing sleep over money, and dreaming of having just a little bit more money. It's a massive percentage of your life is given to this. And it's not that money is good or bad, and, and you got to understand that. It's not that money is good or bad. It, it has, it's tremendously powerful. It has, has an incredible ability to either be powerfully beneficial or horribly destructive. Our culture, as much as it's changed over the thousands of years from which the scripture was written, especially over these last two millennia from when Jesus spoke, what is valued in our cultures is essentially the same. It hasn't really changed. Now, interactive portion of this morning's talk. I don't want your spiritual answers. John does not like spiritual answers. What I want is real meat and potato answers. What, you're going to yell this out, what does our culture say is important? What does our culture value? Power? Reputation? Wealth? Comfort? Intellect smarts? Appearance, right? These are all of the things that we've been taught matter. Our parents pass it along to us. They don't mean to, but I pass it along to my kids, right? These are the things that, that the culture says matters. Money, possessions, power, sex. They're all at the root. The root of all of those things is the same thing that's at the root of money. Because Jesus and the Bible isn't really talking about money. It's talking about this issue, this underlying issue. Now, if you remember, the underlying premise of this whole series is to be, the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the precursor to that is no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world tells you all those things that you just said are, are important or valuable. The Bible says don't conform to that. Think differently. Think in a new way. So this morning, the goal is that you would think in a new way about the power of money and how you and I manage it. We're going to look at a story, a parable that Jesus told about money. Now, many of you, if you're just casual observers of Jesus, you've been to church a couple of times. Heck, if you've never been to church, if I went out to the streets at the square of Morristown this morning, and I said, there's a couple of classic parables. Everybody knows them. Uh, the parable of the, the, the prodigal son. Everybody knows that one, right? Uh, the, the, the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, heck, we, we use that term all the time, right? There's a lot of famous stories that Jesus told. I'm not going to look at those. 
A lot of those have clear messages. They're easier to figure out, although they're often deeper than we think. But this morning, we're going to look at one of those parables that Jesus, nobody, nobody is crocheting this one and hanging it over the fireplace. This is not on the back of the Bible cover that you bought at family bookstores. This is one of those parables that we don't like, that we read and go, oh, that was weird, and pass right by. Or if you're maybe a young believer, like, well, I was the first time I read it. You're horribly confused about what's going on in it. It's called the parable of the shrewd manager. And it's in Luke 16. So I'm going to read it to you. It's going to come up over my head. Darren's going to put it up there. Let me tell you, let me read this story that Jesus told his disciples. He says, there was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. So you got a rich man, you got a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting the employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. Now, if you've ever worked in corporate America, I worked in the financial industry for, for a couple of decades. This happened, this would happen with great regularity in corporate America. In fact, it, it was kind of like a, almost a biblical story. I remember one, one time particularly, we knew that Tuesday the 14th was layoff day at, uh, at wherever, I think it was First Fidelity Bank at that time. And so everybody was told nobody could leave your desk from 10 to 12 because it was layoff day, and you didn't know who was getting laid off. And the word came down that the way they were going to do this is they were going to separate us into two conference rooms. Jim, Bob, and Mary, you know, they might go over to this conference room, and Ted, Carol, and Art, they were going to go to that conference room. And we knew this was happening sometime between 10 and noon. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to start figuring this out. And so we started running jokes, you know, uh, my friends and I, about, you know, you, you knew who was a good performer and who were marginal, and you're like, Please, whatever you do, Lord, don't let my name come up after Mary's in the list of people that are going to that conference room, right? Because you knew if you were in Mary's conference room, you were getting that speech, you're going to be fired. Now, what this manager did that was different than the managers in the world, at least the financial world, when you got terminated in the financial world, you, didn't, you weren't sent back to your desk to clean up, right? You had a guard that came, and he took you to your desk, and he handed you a box and you were allowed to take your personal possessions out of the desk, and then you were walked out. I remember, you'd be walked out to the front of 550 Broad Street, and thank you for your service to the company. And you were off. But that's not what happens in this story. In this story, the, the employer calls him and he goes, what's this I hear about you? You better get your stuff in order, because you're going to be fired. Well, that's a mistake. This guy makes a mistake. Watch what happens. The manager thinks to himself, well, now what am I going to do? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and that's me at 550 Broad Street, right? I mean, I can't get who's kidding who. I couldn't work at Home Depot. Lord knows I can't even, you know, hammer a nail. That's not going to work for me. And I'm too proud to beg. That's true of me, too. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So what does he do? He invites each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asks the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. You need to understand, in this story, this is a lot of money, okay? This is a couple thousand years ago. This is a lot of money. This is not like a 10-cent discount on a bill. I owe, him, uh, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, well, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer, he asked the next man. Well, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Well, here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. 
So what's this guy doing? He's going, here's what I'm going to do. You know, before I get tossed out of the building today, I'm going to cut everybody's debt in half, and then these people will all be indebted to me. They'll all, in a sense, owe me something. And, and then when I get thrown out of here, I'll have somewhere to go and to stay. I'll make my friends. I'm going to use the managers, I'm going to use this guy's resources to buy me friends in this world so I'll be taken care of here in, in, in this world. Now, if you read this as a young believer, when I came to know Jesus, it, it, it was from a very legalistic perspective. And it was that, you know, Jesus is this towering um, moral figure. And he is, okay? But it was almost as if, like, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to stop doing everything wrong. So no more doing anything wrong. And, you know, don't, don't whatever you do, don't drink or smoke or watch TV and, and don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal. Okay, those are good things. And I'm reading this story as a 19-year-old kid, and I'm going, oh, man, Jesus is really going to be ticked at this guy. This guy is wrong. I'm thinking, you know, if you know the stories, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Like they cheated, cheated God in a sense, and God strikes him down. I'm going, oh, if that was bad, wait till Jesus gets his hands on this guy. So the story keeps going. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. What? He likes it. He's impressed by him. Where is the hell and brimstone? Where is the, uh, so this guy was stoned to death. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than the children of light. You get a picture of the disciples looking at him going, huh? This is good? And so Jesus, as he often does, says, here's the lesson. I want you to understand this. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they'll welcome you to an eternal home. He keeps going. He goes, if you're faithful in little things, you're going to be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you're not going to be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy with worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with your own? Jesus says, nobody can serve two masters. You're going to either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Man of Hills, you cannot serve. You cannot serve as a master, God and money. Well, the Pharisees, I love this, okay? Remember, every time the Bible says Pharisees, what we tend to think is those bad people, what we should think is these guys are like me. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this, and they scoffed at him. They're laughing at Jesus. Then he said to them, you know, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world, remember we talked about what this world honors? What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Another version says, the things that most people think are important are worthless as far as God is concerned. And this culture, these people, we Pharisees, we, we deeply love our money. Now, I remember reading this for the first time and being so completely confused. Why, why would Jesus, who everybody told me don't lie and cheat and steal now that I'm a Christian, why is Jesus saying, He's not just like say, not saying, well, you know, this guy's not as bad as he seems. He's saying, understand this, church. He's saying, I want you, my followers, to be like that guy. Be like him. Learn a lesson from him. And for, for me, when I was a young believer, I'm going, I, it just is so confusing to me. Let, let me help you explain it. Here's the deal. To understand what's actually doing, you need to understand two, going on in the story. There's two concepts. The first is this. Jesus is not 
praising the guy because he's a thief or he's dishonest. There's almost a presumption that we know that that's not what's good here. That's, Jesus is not saying be a thief or be dishonest. In fact, he doesn't even address that issue. What Jesus is praising is not his thievery. What Jesus is saying, he's saying you need to be like he is in his shrewdness. Webster defines shrewdness as having or showing an ability to understand things and to make good judgments, to be mentally sharp or clever. So Jesus is saying to you and I, we need to learn, specifically it has to do with our money, we have to learn to think like that guy did about that money, to understand things the way they really are, to get what needs to happen down deep, and to have the guts to execute it like that guy did. You need to be like him. Now, here's the second thing that will help you understand this parable, which is a weird parable. Jesus taught like most rabbis taught. And rabbis in Jesus' day, and Jesus was a rabbi, they called him, they called, his followers would call him rabbi. He taught from, uh, from lesser to greater. Most of his stories always move, like rabbinical stories, from lesser to greater. For example, in Matthew, Jesus says, If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus would say, if an unjust judge, some of these are parable stories, if an unjust judge will do this, what will God, who's a just judge, do? Lesser to greater. If an irritated man will open the door just to get rid of you, what will a God who loves you do when you knock on his door with a need? You see how they teach? From lesser for greater. And so here it is, if a wicked, evil man is shrewd in the use of money that he has access to, what, how much more so should the children of light be? Why aren't you more like that? So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this issue of money and what Jesus is trying to teach you and I in the story. If you take out your sermon notes, you can follow along and you can fill them in. Pens are in the baskets. Everybody make sure, kind of self-police, everybody make sure they have a pen. If you need a pen, find that basket. There should be a basket in each row. Here is the first thing. I, I've been trying to do this every week because the concepts are you have to understand why this is important first. And here's what the church does all the time. Oh, we, we shouldn't talk about money. We shouldn't talk about money. Money is important. You can't not talk about money in the church because it's so indicative of other things. So we're, we're going to talk about it. Here's the number one reason, though, you need to care about money. The number one reason. If you get nothing out of this morning other than this, this could change your life if you get this principle. Number one, money is dangerous. Money is very, very dangerous. I'm going to say something highly controversial right now. I need you to hear it, but I need you to hear it correctly, okay? So many of us in Christian circles pursue the blessings of God. I want to be blessed by God. I want to be blessed by God. I want to be blessed by God. And, and when we say that, we, sometimes we're asking for health. Sometimes we're asking for, I don't know, whatever. But if we're honest, I don't know what percentage it would be. Most of us, when we're saying, I want to get blessed by God, we're saying, I would like God to bless me financially. I, I like, I'd like a little bit more. There's a whole prayer of Jabez thing that went on in the Christian culture a little while ago, right? Like, Lord, you know, I'm going to pray this because then you're going to give me more. You're going to expand my, my, my property, right? You're going to give me more. And so that's how we've kind of looked at blessing from God financially. Heck, if you put on the TV preachers at night, right? What are they peddling? If you do this, send in this, pray that, God will give you more money. And what's become of that is then, in the culture, in, within the church, we start to see people who have more money as being blessed by God. You, you hear us say it to each other, right? 
Oh, you got a promotion? You got, a, you got 50% more in income? Oh, what a blessing. God is really blessing you. Now, he might be. I'm not saying he's not. He might be. However, and the other, here's the other thing. Then we perceive it backwards. I have a friend who is just pouring his life into the kingdom of God in radical ways. And his business is nosedive. He keeps looking at me going, I don't understand. Like, I keep pouring my life into God and my, my, my business keeps going the other way. And so what, what, what tends to happen is if we have a lot of money, we're pre we perceive that we have been blessed by God. If we don't have a lot, we perceive that God is withholding blessing from us. But that's not often what's going on. Here is the story of the whole Bible in a sentence or two. It's the history of the entire people of God from, from, from Genesis to Revelation. God's people, when they are rich and well-fed and prosperous, God's people, when they are rich and well-fed and prosperous, almost without exception, in the whole Bible, over and over and over and over again, you'd almost get sick of it if you read it from this perspective. Two things happen every time God's people become prosperous and well-fed. They do two things. They forget those who are in need because they're well-fed. We forget where we came from. We have an incredible potential to close our eyes to that. So that's the first thing, that, if you look at the history of the people that follow after God. Once they get more than they need, they forget about those who are in need. Here's the second thing in the history of the, of the people of God. The Bible is full of it. Once they get more than they need, they forget about God. We forget about God. The Bible's full of it, and it always comes with prosperity. This is why the memory verse is so key. It sums up our whole attitude towards money. God, don't let me be too poor or too rich. Give me just what I need. How many of you have ever prayed, let's be honest, God, don't give me any more money because I'm afraid I might not be a good manager. God, here's what I want you to do. Give me just what I need. No more. But that's what the, the scripture is saying. God, give me just what I need because if I have too much, I might forget about you. And if I don't have enough, I might steal and disgrace your name. Now, I'm not saying, church, you got to hear this. I'm not saying that money is bad or it's evil or God doesn't love rich people, okay? This is that simplistic, silly thinking. That's not what we're talking about. All I'm saying is this, that wealth is maybe more than anything else in your life. Wealth is dangerous to your soul. Wealth is dangerous to your soul. The warnings are everywhere. When God sustained the Israelites in the desert, right, he calls them out of Egypt and he sends them out and they have nothing to eat. God provides for the manna and he provides for the manna every day. Now, every morning there's new manna for them. What would you and I do if we walked out and there was a, just a farm full of cash? We would hoard it like crazy. How many of you would walk into the farm full of field full of cash and go, I'll only take a 20? That's all I need. That'll get me three Happy Meals. All good. No, we would hoard it. But God says to the people, don't hoard the manna. Just take what you need for today. Because what happens in the story if they take more than they need? What happens to what they have? It rots. Why is God doing this? What is he trying to show his people? He's saying, I know you people. And the minute you get more than you need, you will forget about me. I'm, I, I need to, to, the most important thing for you would to stay in contact with me. I'm not going to allow you to get that far out ahead of me. The Bible, in 1 Timothy 6.10, check this out. And, and many of you know this, but you need to, it gets misquoted all the time. For the love of money, 
The Bible never says that money is evil. The Bible never says that money is evil. Money could be awesome. It's the love of money that is evil. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, it's very dangerous, some people in their eagerness to get rich have wandered away from the faith and caused themselves a lot of pain. Jesus in another parable talks uh, about a farmer sowing a field and he likens it to what happens uh, to the gospel, the good news about God. He says our souls are, are like different kinds of soil. In Luke 8, verse 14, he says this, the seed that fell among the thorn bushes are also people who hear the message. They hear about Christ. They hear about Jesus and what he wants of them, what he desires to give them, how he wants to be with them. Well, what happens? They're so eager for riches and pleasures, they never produce anything. Men of Hills, money is neither good nor bad, but money is very, very dangerous. It should have a little thing on it that says, handle with care. My son, I'll brag on him a little bit, but my son is, is a real um, go-getter type of person. So he, he just got all these interviews in New York City at all these investment banks. They flew him up here, and they put him up in hotels in the city, and he's going you know, from bank to bank, and, and uh, he's do, he got a couple of job offers, and I'm scared to death about it. And he will tell you, I tell him, Courtney's shaking her head because she's heard me say it to him. I tell him probably once a week on the phone, John, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? I'm not saying don't take that job. You should take that job. But you've got to be very, very careful with it. Jesus, in that verse, he says, what does it profit a, the man, a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And then Jesus said, is anything worth more than your soul? So hear me on this. Oftentimes, in the place of this place of blessing is where we have just enough. This morning, if you're sitting here and you go, you know, I have just enough, you are right where you should want to be. That's a good place to be because money is very dangerous. The second reason that you have to get control of your money, the second reason that money matters is this, because money is a master. Two weeks ago, we spoke about our emotions, and I, I, said, I said a common saying. I didn't invent it. But we said that if you, you don't get control of your emotions, your emotions are going to control you. Same principle with, with your money. If we don't manage our money, our money has an incredible power and ability to manage us. Have you been managed by your money? Where you've said, holy smokes, I am not in control of this train anymore. It has gotten away from me. Same principle. So much of what Jesus is doing in your life and my life is setting us free. Is untangling chains of, of sin and death and addiction and, and lies. And, and he's, he's trying to get his people free. And he's saying, you need to be careful because money will put you right back into that slave position. You will lose all the freedom I'm giving you. It'll all get sucked back up by the money. In the story this morning in Luke 16, he says, look, no one can serve two masters. Jesus is saying there's essentially two people you can choose to serve. And they're both masters in your life. They are competing for your allegiance, God and money. He says you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You see how it's kind of, it's not easy to play the middle ground game with money. Money's competing for your heart. The love of money just returns us to slavery. Our minds get consumed by it. Our time gets dedicated to it. Our fears and our worries center on it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning. But if you're carrying credit card debt balances this morning, you have felt this. When that bill comes every month, you feel the enslavement 
to your money. You no longer manage your money, but your money is managing you. I have a, I have a friend that asked me to help him with his finances once. Old guy, never went to the church, doesn't live anywhere near here. But he, he, he said, I, I, I need you to come help me with something. So I, I went up and he said, I, wanna, I want you to, to, to help me manage this. I said, okay. And he, he showed me all these investments he had made. And he had made a lot of investments. There were a lot of single stock purchases, you know, whatever. That, that, that's your own financial thing. He invested in some stocks. Some had done well. Some hadn't done as well. But then I said, okay, uh, what's the other thing? He goes, well, I'm kind of ashamed of this. And I said, you know, don't be ashamed. What is it? He said, I, I've made these investments by racking up some credit card debt. I said, well, how much, how much credit card debt do you have? He said, $80,000 of credit card debt. $80,000 of credit card debt. This was a person who had no choices left to him in his life. He had become a slave to paying his credit card debt. Your money, if you don't master it, will master you. Money is a master. Proverbs 2.27 says this. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Be careful with your money, because your money will master you. Third thing you need to know about your money is this. I love this one. Money is a liar. Money whispers softly in your ears sweet lies that it cannot keep. At its core, right, we've talked about it. all sin is rooted in this temptation. Uh, Satan tempts Adam and Eve with it. If you eat of this fruit, you could be like God. It's all, it's all rooted. It all comes out of that same thing. I want to be like God. I want to be like God. I want to be like God. And nothing adds to our God complex more than money. Money lies. It says, trust me. This is why I love our money actually says, in God we trust. Because the founders, I think, must have had an idea that it's very easy to start putting your trust in this. Money lies to you. We think we can trust it. We think it can be relied on, that it can protect us. Money tells us we have lots of it. We're winners in this game of life. Come on, let's all be honest. Can we be honest? You know, you know that there's something in us when we get lots of money, when we have more money than the other guy. There's something that whispers in our ear, you're more successful, you're smarter, you're better, you're harder working, you're better looking. There's something that money does. It's, it whispers into your soul when you have more of it. It lies to you. It makes you think a certain way about yourself. I did this. It came from me. Let's, let's, do, let's do it conversely. Money also whispers in your soul the other way. Have any of you ever driven on that road that goes from Mendham down into Bernardsville? And have you seen those houses, those incredible houses, those works of art? And as I drive through, through that road down to Bernardsville, you know what whispers in my ear? You're a pathetic loser. Look at you. <laughs> it lies. It lies. Who I am has nothing to do with how much money I have or the size of my house I'm in. But your money lies to you. It lies to you about yourself. It lies to you about other people. And it lies to you about God. Money is a wonderful liar. Look at what Revelation, God says in the last book of the Bible to the church. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize, God says, that you're wretched and pitiful and blind and poor and naked. Money often makes us feel and believe, th believe things that are just not true of ourselves and of others. Now, here's the one that I personally need. Like, if I could get something stitched on my forehead to help me spiritually so that when I looked every morning in the mirror, it would say this, this one would help me. Because this is how money lies to me. I, I, don't, I don't have a spending problem. It, it, I, I have lots of problems, but that's not one of them. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I don't have real high tastes and stuff. 
shocking, right, David? But, um, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have to spend a lot of money, but here's, here's where money does get me all the time. It lies to me about this. Money tells me that it will provide for my security. Money lies to me that way all the time. My 401k balance, if I'm honest, often provides me with a lot more faith and trust and confidence in my future than the promises of God do. How do I know this? I don't know if any of you watched the stock market this week, but the stock market we hit an all-time high again this week. And you know what I do every time the stock market hits an all-time high? I love to check my 401k balance. I whip out that computer, right? I get home from work. <sighs> Look at that. That is high, right? And then I start to think about, well, you know, if these elders here get crazy and let me go, I could probably live on this for a little while, right? And, like, it starts to provide for me all my security. I, oh, look what I have. Now, when the market drops 400 points in a day, which it's been doing a lot lately, guess what I never do? Never do I go and go, <sighs> why? Because I don't want to feel afraid because I've allowed money, I've allowed money to lie to me and tell me that that is what is going to protect me. It's a lie. Money lies. Last thing, I'm going to use a big word for you here. Actually, here, let me give you the Proverbs on this, right? Proverbs 18.11, this is great. The rich think their wealth protects them. They imagine themselves, imagine, they imagine themselves safe behind it. All right, last one, the last reason, reason why your money matters and why you have to get control of it. Because money, fancy word, is a bellwether. Money is a bellwether. You look it up, a bellwether is something that leads or shows what's going to happen in the future. What the Bible says is somehow the way you manage your money today, and Jesus teaches this on multiple occasions, how your you manage your money today is highly indicative of where your heart is and if God can trust you with bigger and better things. This is not... Money management in the scripture has nothing to do with how much money you have. God's expectations of what you're doing with that money are exactly the same if you have a little or a lot. It's a bellwether of where your heart is and what's going to happen in your future, in the world to come. In our story this morning in Luke 16, 10 to 11, Jesus says whoever can be trusted with a little can be trusted with a lot. Whoever is dishonest with a little will be dishonest with a lot. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with true, another version is, heavenly riches? Scripture says if you're a good manager of what you've been, been given from God now, you're going to get more to manage. You want more money? You want the blessings of God financially? Well, he gives his money to people who manage it well. If you look back and go, how am I doing with God's money, and the answer's not well, why would you think he's going to give you a lot more of it? You've, he, he, Jesus tells another story. There's another parable. And he, he calls it the parable of the talents. And again, there's a, a landowner, and he goes away, and he gives to, to each of these people that are to manage his estate different amounts of money. And when he returns, he, he says, what have you done with the money? Matthew 5, 23. The master says to those who invested the money, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, this is like the classic Christian scripture. We all want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we often think that that's like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't go to dirty movies anymore and I stop smoking. And that Jesus is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
that was said to a guy that managed the king's stuff well. It was really applicable to maybe more than anything else, his money. Because money is a bellwether. Money is a bellwether of where your heart is, of what you can be trusted with. Jesus, Jesus says, well done, you, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. If you want the master to put you in charge of more of his stuff, if you want your ministry to grow, your responsibilities to grow, you name it, how you handle your money now is a bellwether. It's an indicator of the future, what God is going to give you in this life and the life to come. You will not going to be playing a harp on the clouds in heaven. If you manage stuff well in this life, in the kingdom to come, you are going to be put in charge of much more stuff. So this stuff, this stuff matters, and it's dangerous. Well, how do we handle money? How do, what do I do so I don't wind up getting controlled by it, that my, my heart, I don't lose my soul? I'm going to give you five things. If you would do these five things, if you would do these five things, it will change radically the way you manage your money. First thing, your money is not yours. Your money, I know you know this, but you don't know it deep in your soul, and neither do I. Your money is not yours. This is the absolute key. It is the premise behind every teaching on money. It's spoken in all the stories, but we run right by it. In the story this morning, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Whose possessions? He wasn't wasting his money. He was wasting the master's money. That's the heart of the story. There's a guy who's wasting somebody else's money. Jesus tells another parable, much like it. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Here's the deal. You and I, you actually have no money of your own. You have no money. You have God's money. He, it's just on loan for a little while to you. Everything you have is just on loan. It's not yours. I know you've heard that before. I've heard it. But we just, you're just going to, see, somebody, you understand, 40, 50, 60 years ago, somebody else had that money. They were managing that money. And uh, I hate to break it to you, but almost everybody in this room, 40, 50, 60 years from now, somebody else is going to be managing that money. You don't own Jack. Can I say that? <laughs> It's a good thing I have that 401k account in case things go the other way here. <laughs> See, you don't own it. You and I are just managers of it. It wasn't ours. It gives you, if you would get that, if I would get that at deep levels, do you know how much that changes what you do with that money? When you realize, that, wait a minute, this isn't actually mine. I heard this week somebody said a way to remember it is when what you think you own is really on loan. You didn't have it before you came on the scene. Someone's going to have all your stuff after you leave. And so the deal is, the deal is, guess what? You're all in management. We're all managers of the king's money. This story is written about you and I. Now, if you feel something rising up inside you, I remember President Obama, I guess, a couple years ago, right? He made that controversial statement about somebody's business. He said, you didn't build that business, right? And everybody got all inflamed about that. So I'm not going to make any political judgments on that statement. But there is something where we sit here and I, I tell you that's not your money. There is something in your flesh that goes, don't tell me that's not my money. Did you get up at 4 o'clock every morning? Did you go to school? Did you take on school debt? Did you stay late at night? Did you work your hands to the bone? Did you drive around a car that was all beat up? Don't tell me that's not my money. Well, God, God knows his people. 
So here's what Deuteronomy says, right? Deuteronomy says, I'm going to find it in my notes. It's probably up there already, right? But remember the Lord your God. Remember, because what do we do when we get money? We forget. Remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You know how everybody says you're so smart? Who do you think gave you the smart? You know how everybody says you're so strong? Who made you so strong? It all came from him. It's not your money. We're all managers of stuff. The Bible's clear about this. Managers, stewards, there's a day coming. There is a day coming when the owner of all this stuff comes back to get it. Every story ends the same way. The manager always comes back. And he says, what did you do with my stuff? There's always an accounting of what happened to his stuff. This isn't an issue just for wealthy people. This was an issue for the guy that got one talent or ten talents. We all have a performance review coming. Now, this is not, understand, this is not about if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell, okay? You're going to heaven if you believe in Christ, if you, you, the life of Christ has been implanted in you, right? You're giving your life back to Christ. This isn't like you're going to hell because you're a bad money manager. What this is is the king comes and he says, uh, hey, man, I, I gave you a lot of my stuff. What would you do with it? Oh, well, you know, we went out to eat and uh, what did I do with it? Well, I'm not really sure what I did to it, you know. Does that just sound familiar? I'm not really sure where all that money went to, but uh, I, I'm not sure what I did with it. Well, God's going to say, well, that's fantastic. But in this kingdom to come, I need to allocate my resources to somebody that I can trust them with a little bit better. Right? Uh, there's going to be a change in the responsibilities in the kingdom to come based on what you're doing with your money today. There is an accounting coming for what we did with this stuff. It's such a powerful principle for managing your money. I, I pay my desk or my bills at a, a wooden desk in my house now. And if I'm paying my bills and I just stop for a minute, right? I pay my bills on Friday and just stop and go, okay, I'm about to allocate God's, God's stuff here. That totally changes my thoughts on where I'm spending this money. Not what am I going to do with my money, but how am I going to allocate God's money, right? Number two. Number one, if you would understand it's not yours, that you're just responsible for managing it. Number two, you need to look ahead. You need to look ahead. Christians are famous for, for not doing this. And it's a misunderstanding of the scriptures. What is Jesus praising in this story? The story, the manager thought to himself, well, now what am I going to do? My boss fired me and I don't have the strength to dig dishes and I'm too proud to beg. One of the things that Jesus praises about this guy is he didn't just say, well, I got enough money for today. He looked ahead and said, what am I going to do in the future? I don't have any more money coming in. There's going to be a day coming where I'm not going to have this situation as I have it now. Jesus praises his shrewdness that he wasn't just looking at today. Proverbs 14, 8, the wise man looks ahead. Listen to this, church. This one's great. But the fool attempts to fool himself and won't face the facts. What facts about your finances are you unwilling to face this morning? That's a great one. How many of you open that credit card bill and don't want to look at it? I don't want to look at that. What's the minimum payment? I'll just send that. See, I knew. I know. I live in the real world. Right? The wise man looks ahead and goes, how am I going to get out of this? But where am, I going to, where am I going to be in 20 years? How am I going to provide for myself and my family and my retirement? The fool attempts to fool himself and won't face the facts. 
It's just so lost on our culture. We're the greatest consumer culture that's ever lived. Parents, you want to give your kids two words of advice? My kids are so sick of hearing this, okay? But I tell it to them all the time. Delay satisfaction. If you would just delay satisfaction, you don't need to have a fancy car right now. You can have a fancy car later. You don't need to have this now. If you would just save a little money now, you could have twice as much later. Delay a little, look ahead a little bit. Delay satisfaction for just a little bit. I heard an amazing statistic this week. I don't know if it's true, but this is what I heard in two places. The average savings rate in Europe is 12% of income. The average savings rate in Japan is 25% of their income. Do you know what the average saving rate is in the United States? Negative 1% according to this statistic. We spend more than we make. Why do you think the debt keeps rolling? And so, you know, we all pick on the national debt. The national debt, in many ways, is just this indicative of the way we all run our lives. Borrow today so I can enjoy today. But the scripture says stop doing that. Proverbs 21.20, this is a great one. It says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. But fools spend whatever they get. You need to look ahead. Third thing you need to do if you want to be set free from having money dominate your life, you need to make a plan. This is not rocket science but we don't do it. I'm not great at it. Here's what impressed Jesus about the manager again. Why does Jesus say, my people should be like him? Because what did he do? He looked ahead and he said, quote, Ah, I know how to ensure that I'm going to have friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. Another version says, I know what I'm going to do. You need to have a plan. The way we handle our money, the way we handle his money, is so often the way we handle our lives. It's what we're trying to overcome in this series, which is I'm just going to fumble around and, you know, eventually I'll die. You need to have a, we need to have a plan for what we're doing with his money. Goals and aspirations for it. Not just a dream. Nothing needs a plan in your life more than money. Do you have a plan for your money? Not dreams for your money. We all have dreams. Do you have a plan and are you following it? Have you said, this is my money and this is what I'm doing with it. This is how I'm going to allocate it. This is how I'm going to spend it. A budget is nothing but a planning where you're going to spend your money rather than wondering where the money went. These are two great verses. Proverbs 21.5, plan carefully and you'll have plenty. If you act too quickly, you'll never have enough. How about this one? Tell me if you've ever felt like this. Proverbs 23.5, your money can be gone in a flash, as if it had grown wings and flown away like an eagle. Do you know how old these things are? How many of you have sat around and go, I have... I have no idea where my money goes. If you've ever sat around and said, right, Joni, we say this sometimes, I have no idea where this money's going. You know why? Because you don't have a plan for how you're spending it. You're just allowing it to fly away. When Joan and I first got married, for you younger people, this could be for everybody. Two, here's, two, here's two eyes been budgeting things and how they worked in our lives. When we were very young and we didn't have enough money, we would go to the, um, we'd get our paychecks and we'd cash them, and we'd get down to the change. And I had every bill that we would pay, and I had it divided up by 12. So when I got that money, I had 20 envelopes, and I, I can't tell you where I kept them, because if you ever break into my house, you'll know where all my money is. But we had this stack of envelopes, right? And in that envelope, so like things like the heating bill. Well, the heating bill, I only paid in the winter. So you might say, well, how'd you do that? I knew how much last year's heating bill was. I divided it by 12, and I put that in that cash envelope every month. 
And we ran our lives like this for years. I would sit at that dining room table, get that paycheck, divide it into the envelopes, put the envelopes where I can't tell you I put it. And when that bill came, it was, the money was always there. I'd probably tell you we never felt more financially free in our lives than when we had a plan for how we were spending our money. We had a plan for what we were giving to God. We had a plan for everything. It was all in the envelope system. If you can do the envelope system, and everybody can, you should do it. Now, you want to know what happened to us? Here's what happened to us. Maybe it's happened to you. There came a day when we started to make a little bit more money than our expenses. And you know, that's a dangerous place. You know why? I didn't think I needed that envelope system anymore. Because I had plenty of money washing around now. My mortgage payment had kind of stayed, all my stuff had stayed the same, but I was making a little bit more money. And the plan went out the window. This morning, I had everybody in the first service was like, ding, that's exactly what happened to me. I used to have a budget, and I started making more money, and now I've, I've never had a budget again. I'm telling you, if you do not have a plan for how you're spending the king's money, when that performance review comes due, and he says, what'd you do with it? And you go, I'm not really sure. That's not a good answer. It's not a good answer. Make a plan. Two left. This one's the most important in the list. It's the point of the story. Jesus says in the story, the moral of it is this. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. This is crazy. Jesus is saying, go buy friends. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if there is anywhere where you and I should be taking the money he's giving us to us and investing it, it is in acquiring friends who will one day wind up in heaven with us. Jesus is saying if the people that follow after me would just be half as wise with their money and worry about the time to come, if, he, if they would just care enough about investing in ways that would pave the road for people to be into the kingdom of God, how much better would things? It's such an easy concept. Jesus is saying there's a day coming when you and I are no longer, you're not always going to be on this earth. There's another kingdom coming. And he's teaching us that one day when you leave this one and enter that one, there could be lots of people standing there saying, you don't know who you are, what you did, how you spent your money, the way you impacted my life, the way you spent it in Guatemala, the way you gave it to your local church, the way you poured it out to the least of these. You don't understand what you've done. They're going to be standing there thanking you, welcoming you into heavenly dwellings because of what you did with your money in this life. Investing it wisely, build relationships, build ministries where people wind up finding God and coming to Christ, developing a relationship with Him. So tough question. Here's a tough question. I don't think this one's in your devotions this week. I should have thought about it and put it in there. Tough question. Is, be honest. Is anybody going to be in heaven because of the way you spent His money? Is anybody going to be greeting you at the door saying, I am here because of the way you spent that money? That's the, that's the story. That's the lesson in the story. Did you in your plan, did you prioritize the kingdom of God? Did it take priority for you over the house payment? If I didn't give you the point, the point is this. You need kingdom priorities. You need kingdom priorities in that plan. Did it take priority over other things in your life? House payments and car payments and tuition payments. Because what so often the church is guilty of your pastor can be guilty of is, but I have to pay this, I have to pay that, and whatever I have left, God, I will give you a small portion of that. 
See, that's not what the scripture is calling you. It's saying, this is my stuff. How are you managing it? And here's where you should really be doing it. You really should be focusing your money on investing it in things that will get people into heaven. Now, hear me, Mendham. This is not a tithing talk. This is not about giving a certain percentage of your money to the church. This is about prioritizing your management of God's resources so that people wind up in heaven. Jesus is saying if the children of light would just manage their money half as well as the shrewd managers of the world, their future would be changed. They'd be bringing, being welcomed into heavenly places. If they looked ahead and did like he did, if they just looked ahead and planned, think of what would be going on in heaven. If, if you know, ask yourself, I asked myself this this morning as I was working on this. If an unbiased party came in and looked at my checkbook, what would he say I loved? What would he say I loved? It's not about tithing. It's about heaven and hell and life and death. It's the orders of the owner about where to be putting our money, where to invest it, what kind of return to be looking for. When you spend every year, I take my, my, I spend a lot of money on Guatemala, and every year my flesh goes, for heaven's sake, you mean to spend that much money, money on Guatemala? Where? I'm investing in trying to get people into heaven. Every year, you know, we write the church a, a big check, and every year, listen, every year there's a part of me that goes, well, you know, they don't pay you that much, so you should just kind of write off what your, your, your real worth should be as part of that. But there's this element in me that goes, do you really want to write that check? There is nowhere more important to, to, to be giving your money to than getting people into heaven. I want to encourage you to take an unbiased look at your plan. If you don't have one, come up with one. And, and, and ask yourself, where is God's work falling into this? I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm going to close with this last one. This is in your devotions this week. If you get this one right, it will help you overcome the dangers of money. And it's this. You need to be content with what you've been given. You need to be content with what you have been given. Ecclesiastes says this, whoever loves money, remember the root of, uh, of evil is love money. Whoever loves money will never have enough. And whoever loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. Have you, I mean, have you, have you ever been satisfied with your income, ever? The Bible says it over and over, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God said, I'm never going to leave you. Philippians 4, 12. Paul, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. The greatest tool for overcoming the danger of money is to be content with what you have. Being content, by the way, you'll see this in your devotions. Being content is not like, well, you know what? I'm kind of content where I am right now. My house is good enough, and my car is okay. That's not contentment. Because that's going to go away. Being content is saying, like, Paul, whatever situation I'm in, this is the situation that God has placed me into and allowed me to be into, and I will not shake my fist at God and tell him that he doesn't know what he's doing. What he has given me is enough. Contentment will free you from the dangers of money. Father, what were you thinking when you allowed us to control your stuff? Yet it is, what a privilege. What a privilege to be given the keys to the master's car. To be able to drive it around and to do with it what we desire. We could take it out on the back roads and do figure eights and beat the crud out of it. Or we could drive it around to the worst places on earth and fill it up 
with souls. Lord, would you open the eyes of your people to see the gift that we've been given and to be good and proper managers of the king's resources. In Jesus' name.